Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have Scott Carver. He's a lecturer in wildlife ecology at University of Tasmania, and he specializes in the ecology and epidemiology of infectious diseases that hurt, you know, occur to wildlife and in domestic animals and, and how it affects humans. So, Scott, thanks for coming. How are you doing? Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah. So what, um, what got you interested in, in looking at ecology and epidemiology of, uh, you know, of wildlife animals and, and how they affect people? Uh, well, I guess uh, for me, it started probably back in when I was doing my undergraduate degree. Uh, I, I, you know, I've always uh, had a bent towards sort of working with animals and animal sort of conservation. And, uh, and, and during some of my master's studies, I really got sort of interested in these ideas around um, sort of connecting sort of ecosystem health with the health of uh, animals and, and also the health of humans as well. And that led me on to a PhD uh, working on mosquito-borne disease ecology, and then um, and then ultimately moving on to um, other sort of wildlife disease systems uh, in different parts of the world. So, what uh, I would think you'd have to focus on certain animals or certain uh, parts of the ecology. Like, what what is your focus? Is it habitat? Is it disease? Is it uh, you know, and what animals? Uh, it's it's really disease, uh, and I have a few systems that I generally work with now. Uh, now that I have a stable sort of academic job, I most a lot of my research now focuses on wombats that are impacted by this disease called sarcoptic mange. Um, but I also do uh, and have done a lot of work in the US working on uh, viral transmission of a variety of different viruses in bobcats and mountain lions uh, and domestic cats. Uh, and uh, and then I still tinker around the edges with a bit of mosquito-borne disease ecology in Australia, where uh, I work on a virus called Ross River virus, which cycles between marsupials and spills over to humans. Uh, and then, then there's a few other things like koalas that get impacted by a chlamydial disease. Uh, so I've worked on lots of different things, and that's just what I work on now. I've also worked on... Um, uh, uh, hunter viruses in the US, which are uh, right. which are spread by small mouse and and other things as well. Yeah, and koalas, I've I've heard that there's a um, a virus that's like endogenizing; it's becoming part of their DNA, and it's uh, changing over the entire population of them. Are you? Am I right about that? Is that what's happening or is it something different? No, that's absolutely correct. So there's a virus that they have that's called koala retrovirus um, or um, abbreviated people call it CORV. And, uh, and it seems to have been uh, introduced in sort of n- in the northern part of their range in Queensland and has been sort of moving steadily south uh, in koalas. And it, as it has been doing that, yeah, it's been endogenizing into the genome. Uh, it, it is quite a complicated picture. Um, so people think that the virus has some some health impacts on koalas, um, but it might be down to particular kinds of strains. Uh, and, uh, and there's lots of threats to koalas like habitat destruction and also chlamydial disease and interactions with 
dogs and things like that. So, so it's quite a complex picture. Um, but um, but they certainly that is certainly one of their uh, one of their uh, major diseases of interest. Well, what's it uh, what's it doing to them? Is it killing them, or is it just changing them in some unknown way? Um, with it, with it being a retrovirus, uh, it, it it probably its major effect is through influencing uh, the immune uh, system. So. Uh, it's it's still fairly unclear to be completely honest, uh, um, but I think the sort of the greatest understanding is that it sort of has some effects in terms of sort of compromising their immune responses uh, and making them more susceptible uh, to um, other other forms of uh, health risks and things like that. Um, so uh, so there's still much to be learned there. It's a yeah, it's an interesting disease that I think is sort of not not entirely well understood yet. So what um you know, for where you are right now, are you looking now? I mean, I guess it probably has to. Has your attention been forced to look at local animals, local ecology because of the, you know, the coronavirus and shutdowns and localization of everything? Or like, what's what's your work right now at this moment? <laughs> yeah, that's that's a very good point. Uh, well, right at the moment, um, uh, and for the last few years, it's really I've been had a, a, a growing focus on wombats, which are. Uh, uh, these wonderful Australian uh, marsupials that uh, um, live down burrows and come out and feed at night time and spend a lot of time sleeping quite like koalas as well. And um, they, get really, they get really smashed by this uh, disease called sarcoptic mange, which was introduced to Australia by European settlers and their domestic animals about a couple of hundred years ago. Uh, and so it, it's sometimes a conservation issue in Australia, so it can cause population declines, but it's more often it's kind of an animal welfare issue, so populations can sustain with the disease, but uh, the suffering at an individual level is quite horrendous to wombats. And, uh, and so a lot of my research these days is geared around trying to find um, disease management solutions uh, to this uh, in wombats and, and other animals. Um, this disease impacts over 100 species of mammal globally, including humans. Uh, and um, uh, uh, yeah, and then which is a, a fairly complicated business, but uh, but I think we've got some real chances to really um, uh, make some positive uh, gains for uh, for these animals. What role do they play in the ecology? They look like hamster dogs. I guess if you mix the two together. <laughs> yeah, they they certainly do. Uh, so um, I mean, they're, they're not they're not too small. They uh, weigh up. Um, a, your average adult wombat weighs about 20 kilograms, which I guess is about 50 pounds. And uh, so, and they can move pretty quickly over short distances. Um, so I've certainly been um, outrun by wombats on many a, an occasion. Uh, they, uh, so they, uh, in terms of the ecosystem, the herbivores, they graze on grasses predominantly uh, and, and they're kind of minor ecosystem engineers. So they, they dig these burrows um, that they live in um, and they'll dig a variety of other burrows and, and lots of other animals utilise those burrows. Uh, uh, there was some uh, media when they had the big bushfires in Australia earlier this year of other animals utilising wombat burrows. And that's actually quite common um, that other animals will use wombat burrows for shelter. Uh, and and they also just kind of turn over the topsoil quite often as well. So they'll often eat grass roots and they've got sort of these big sort of powerful arms um, and claws on their uh, forepaws that they can use for just kind of like tearing through the top a uh, few centimetres of soil and kind of eating grass roots uh, f- to obtain carbohydrates. So 
what what are they preyed upon? I mean, what they so they just eat grasses and everything, and they make these holes. I mean, do they do they help fields turn over? You know, do they attack crops? I mean, like in terms of humans and wombats, what's the interaction there? And and again, what what eats them? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, so they. Uh, um, in terms of in Tasmania, uh, one of the animals that eats wombats is the Tasmanian devil. Um, so it's a, a, a native marsupial carnivore. And, um, uh, and on the Australian mainland, it's mostly things like dingoes and wild dogs. There's not too many things that eat wombats. And they're quite well, uh, they've got quite good defences. Uh, so wombats, uh, when they sense a predator, they'll run down a burrow and they'll stand in the tunnel of their burrow and they have this hardened um, uh, skin on their backside uh, which is very difficult for an animal to bite at or to get around. These wombats basically kind of block the hole like a plug uh, to stop predators from eating them. Uh, and there's, um, they're quite well known for occasionally actually killing um, things like uh, a, a fox or an animal that tries to get over the top of a burrow, uh, the wombat in a burrow, and they've got very powerful legs, so they'll stand up and they'll actually squash the animal against the roof of the burrow and basically suffocate them by compressing their airway. So, um, so they've got some of these sort of quite amazing defences. Um, uh, and, and, and I guess at an ecosystem level in terms of the impacts that they have uh, for other animals, it's definitely nutrient turnover of the soil and providing um, shelters for other animals as well. Not, not deliberately providing shelters for other animals, but because they dig a lot of burrows, other animals tend to use them as well. Hmm, okay. So the disease that's affecting them, is it, uh, what does it do to the wombats? And again, I don't know. I, I, I would wonder sadly if it's hard to get any funding to study this because if they're not uh, directly affecting people, you know, sadly they may not care. They may think other animals are priorities. Yeah. Uh, yes. I'll come on to that. Actually, I, I didn't, I didn't really complete your former question. So I might answer that just a little bit more if that's okay. Sure. Um, yeah. So in terms of uh, interactions with humans, wombats, uh, uh, the most of the sort of negative interactions is where they uh, are near uh, farming rural properties and <coughs> excuse me um, and they go out onto uh, pasture land and uh, consume grass there um, which they don't consume huge amounts but wombats are kind of like little little bulldozers and they will uh, they're really quite good at like pushing through and underneath fences which lets in other marsupials and so a lot of their conflict with humans comes from um, comes in the agricultural areas through uh, um, through impacting the integrity of farm farming fences or sometimes even undermining them by digging burrows around them uh, and I guess probably their other main um, uh, threat with humans is that uh, they're not very good with uh, vehicles on the roadway so wombats occasionally get hit by a car um, which usually does a reasonable amount of damage both to the wombat and the car because uh, they're fairly solid creatures um, right. Right. how so, big are they like how much do they weigh and everything uh, they weigh about 20 kilograms, an uh, uh, average adult wombat, so it's about 50 pounds. Uh, but they can, um, they can get up to close to 40 kilograms um, at the biggest size, so, so they're not too small. <laughs> are they at all similar to capybaras? I know those are like giant rodents, but they seem, I guess, a little bit similar. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, um, morphologically, they're pretty similar in size to a capybara, yeah. 
Okay, but uh, other than that, they're not similar at all, right? No, no, they're not social. In fact, they're anti-social. Uh, wombats, uh, wombats are kind of like uh, uh, grumpy, solitary loners, uh, as I think the way I would describe them. There's, uh, as, as juveniles, they stick with their mum very closely, but then they turn into teenagers and then they want nothing to do with each other just about. So, so they're mostly, you find, one wombat lives down a burrow on its own. Um, and uh, uh, and of course they interact to uh, mate with one another, but otherwise they um, they don't really even seem to like each other. <laughs> so they're quite entertaining. Oh, <coughs> I, should talk, so, I should talk about this disease, shouldn't I? So, <laughs> yep, go ahead. Yeah. Um, so wombats uh, are impacted by this disease called sarcoptic mange, um, and uh, and it causes really quite severe sort of symptoms. So. Uh, so humans also can get this um, disease. It's called scabies when humans get it, and, and so can yeah. domestic dogs. And it's perhaps best well known for that. Uh, and uh, uh, and wombats get uh, what we call crusted mange or crusted scabies, which is really the most severe form of the disease, where uh, where they have uh, uh, what we'd call a um, uh, a type four inflammatory response, or you might even call it an anti-inflammatory immune response to infection, um, which means the number of mites, uh, so it's mites that cause this disease, uh, multiply to very large numbers on the wombat. And their immune response results in basically their skin thickening up and cracking and uh, hair loss. And, um, and usually they become thinner and thinner and thinner and, um, and ultimately die of like opportunistic um, environmental bacterial infections. Um, <clears throat> so it's really severe disease on these animals and they really go through quite significant suf- suffering over a period of about sort of two to three months before they usually die, um, die from it. Uh, and I guess one of the things that uh, makes it sort of publicly um, re- well recognised in Australia is that we is that people see sick and suffering wombats because they tend to be more likely to come out during the day, and you can see that they're visibly lost hair and that they're visibly sick. Uh, and so that that really drives um, public attention and um, um, and uh, certainly. Um, helps us justify our research on these animals. So are you trying to figure out how to stop the mange or what's a, is there something unique physiologically about the wombats that, you know, by learning them about them and studying them, that's going to translate to other animals or other conditions? Uh, yes, very much so. So on both fronts. Um, so wombats have very low metabolic rates and we think that that may be one of the reasons why they su- suffer such the severe form of the disease. Not 100% certain on that, but that's, um, that's one of our working hypotheses. Um, and, and the disease impacts lots of different animals. So, uh, so in, um, just to name a few, in North America, there's quite significant problems with uh, black bear and um, Eastern North America uh, impacted by sarcoptic mange. Um, uh, wolves in Yellowstone National Park and, and other uh, carnivores there. Uh, in Europe, it really impacts uh, things like uh, mountain ibex and um, chamois is another um, undulate that uh, it impacts over there. Um, and red foxes around the world, it's well known to uh, impact them as well. So it's got a, this huge host range uh, across mammal species. Uh, and so what we what we're doing with wombats is really trying to figure out ways that we can manage the disease. And it is a treatable disease, so you can apply treatments to wildlife for that. 
Um, and there's a whole bunch of logistics about uh, trying to manage a disease in a wildlife population because they usually aren't very good patients, right? They don't really want to be uh, captured and, uh, and handled and had treatments administered to them. Um, so there's a bunch of logistics. But what we learn with wombats, we can really apply to other animals uh, around the world as well. Is there, you, know, you said they have a very low metabolic rate. Well, how does that affect you know, these mites from the sarcoptic mange ability to... Uh... Does that mean that they have a, I don't know, their, their immune system's not very tuned or you know, like what's the consequence of them having a slow metabolism? Yeah, that's uh, not well uh, understood. So koalas also can get sarcoptic mange and both of them suffer the most severe form of the disease, whereas carnivores who have higher metabolic rates like um, dogs and foxes uh, tend to suffer what we call ordinary mange in most circumstances. Um, and sort of humans, um, uh, and really, um, and really, in those animals, uh, the only times they get crusted mange or crusted scabies uh, is when they are immunocompromised. Um, whereas wombats and koalas tend to pretty much always get uh, crusted mange, as far as we can tell. And so we hypothesize that maybe the immune response is slower because they have these low metabolic rates, um, uh, or maybe it's just not as well geared up um, for the kind of the more inflammatory immune responses. We're not 100% sure, and we're trying to figure that out. Um, uh, but I well, guess... They, like, what's the benefits of a low <clears throat> metabolic range? Do they live longer? Or, you know, do they, I mean, are they able to handle heat and cold? Better or worse? Like, what, what are all the consequences of uh, you know, low versus high metabolism, let's say? It's, yeah, it's, uh, for wombats, having a uh, low metabolism uh, means that they are ecologically really uh, able to sustain themselves during difficult environmental conditions. So because they live underground, uh, those underground conditions are relatively stable when they're sleeping down their burrows. Um, and then they come out and they'll feed, a healthy wombat will feed for sort of two to four hours uh, a day. Uh, and, and having a low me- metabolic rate means that they can kind of sustain on less food for longer than other things like your kangaroos and your other macropod marsupials. And so if you have difficult environmental conditions like it hasn't rained for a while and uh, there's a lot of competition for food resources, wombats are a little bit better geared up to last longer during those periods of, um, of environmental stress than uh, most, other, most other herbivores that they compete with. So, um, I don't know, are you, are you trying to just defend them against this disease? Are you trying to understand animals like them, like koalas as well? Like, what, what do you think would be a beneficial understanding that you could achieve by studying them and by studying maybe animals that are similar to them? Uh, so, I guess there's a few reasons why we're focusing on um, this disease and disease control. Uh, one of them uh, is, I guess, uh, one, of the, one of the reasons... Sorry about that. I'll, st- I'll start that again. That was my alarm going off. Um, there's no a few why we're uh, focusing on wombats. Um, one of them is um, because it's an invasive pathogen that's been introduced by European settlers um, uh, to Australia and many other places around the world. Uh, there's a question of whether it's sort of incumbent on us to actually do something about this quite significant suffering that we cause to native wildlife um, in our country. Um, so that's certainly one of the reasons. Um, uh, another reason is that there's already a lot of people from the general community uh, in Australia who uh, who try to 
treat this disease and wombats who see these animals suffering want to do something about it. Uh, so one of our other reasons is to provide some good science that can <clears throat> be used to uh, guide uh, the general community who are already uh, trying to manage this disease um, but don't have the same uh, same expertise um, as, as uh, in treating these animals as, as what scientists and veterinarians do. Uh, and and more generally, uh, it does cause conservation and animal welfare issues in other places around the world, and uh, um, and and some of those are quite significant, and people are quite concerned about those in many locations. Uh, and so, by advancing our uh, capacity for disease control and wombats, we can really take what we've learned in this system and apply it to other systems to um, help other people also manage this disease. And, and there certainly is plenty of cases of that as well. Is there anything, uh, I don't know, like truly interesting or amazing about wombats that makes them completely unique <clears throat> or are they just, yeah, look, I, I think wombats are great. I've, uh, uh, you know, when I started working on them, I saw a need um, and that's where I, what was the real justification for me starting to work on them. But I've, I think like all researchers, you sort of fall in love with your uh, study animals more and more over time and as you learn more new things about them. Uh, and one of the, uh, I guess, the uh, wild wombats are sort of interesting in the sense that they're sort of these burrowing herbivores that sort of come out and feed at night time. Uh, one of their sort of really unique traits is that they um, are the only mammal that I know of that produce um, these cube-shaped poos, um, uh, and, uh, uh, which is quite unique. And, uh, and they basically use them as a form of communication. So wombats are quite antisocial generally, and <clears throat> they'll deposit little piles of cube-shaped poos um, next to prominent objects in the landscape. It might be a rock, it might be a log or a little rise and that sort of thing. And they use it as a sort of um, a form of like social communication through the sense, uh, that, uh, so the sense of smell that uh, uh, that is created by those. And so one of the uh, um, things, people have always sort of asked these questions about how do wombats produce these cubes um, when all other feces that animals produce tend to be kind of more cylindrical. And uh, so recently we've been doing some fun research to try and sort of understand that. And, uh, uh, and that's been quite well recognised internationally. We're sort of very fortunate to win an Ig Nobel Prize for that last year uh, um, and to our research on to understanding how wombats produce cube-shaped scats. They're literally like a, a cube? They are literally like a cube. Um, uh, not, not all of them, but a very significant proportion of them are cube-shaped. Do they come out that way or are they shaping them somehow and nudging them, stacking them? <clears throat> well, that's been, that's exactly been the question that we've been trying to figure out. So there's all these uh, wonderful hypotheses about how wombats produce cube shaped feces. Uh, and, um, and nobody had ever tested them. So uh, some of my, some of my favorite ones are that they had a square shaped anal sphincter. Um, and so they'd kind of like push, push their feces out through that and then it'd be get turned into a cube. That's, that's wrong. Um, uh, there were even some <laughs> extremely colorful hypotheses that, uh, that wombats would pat them into shape after they had deposited them. Uh, which is also well, if they're using them as signaling, then maybe they are doing that. What's wrong? With, I mean, if, if they could use them as signaling, why wouldn't they shape them? Maybe that conveys some information. <laughs> well, well, they're definitely not doing it by uh, by patting them into shape physically after they've done them. Um, so we um, we've done a number of dissections of wombats uh, as they've been 
these are ones that have been hit by a vehicle or being euthanized by a veterinarian for other health related reasons. Um, and so sometimes we bring them back to my lab and um, we dissect these animals. And one of the things we discovered early on is that they actually form into cubes inside the intestine, which is otherwise a sort of soft tube. Um, and, um, and up to a meter from the anus, uh, um, you get these um, scats that are turning into cubes. And so we've been working with some really great um, uh, uh, physicists and engineers um, at Georgia Tech uh, who think about these problems in a different way to biologists. And so working together has been just really fun. Um, and uh, and it looks like uh, the answer is that it's a combination of the drying of the feces inside of their intestine and the lower distal colon and the sort of the varying stretch properties around the circumference of the intestine, which is what creates that cube shape. Um, um, and then they get deposited out like that. And the reason why we think they do it is because the cubes are less likely to roll away when they deposit them on an object. Um, but we still need to um, do some fun experiments to test that hypothesis too. So. Oh, you mean the cubes, it's, it, they, they're more likely to stay in place so they can accomplish the signaling that they want? Yeah, we think so. So we think it helps them just stay aggregated together um, is, is the hypothesis anyway. Uh, um, of course, nobody's actually done the research on it, Possi- possibly because the research is more fun rather than applied. So. <laughs> well, how complicated is the signaling that they do? Like they, well, they, they leave them and uh, like what? What's, I mean, just the presence of them signals to another wombat, stay away, this is my territory, or what, what do you think is going on? Um, I think it's, they're not territorial animals, so they don't actually defend um, a territory to exclude other animals. They, um, they have quite overlapping home ranges uh, with lots of other wombats. Um, but I think uh, it's a form of like, uh, uh, and we don't actually know, to be completely honest, we don't know. Um, but wombats will certainly walk around their home ranges and will visit other um, cube poo piles um, and sniff them. And so we think that it's uh, more an advertising of who is there in an area. It may also signal things like re- whether somebody is uh, reproductively um, active or not as well. Um, uh, definitely some form of social communication uh, but the exact details of that are uh, are good questions. Hmm, interesting. Yeah. I mean, yeah. They, anything special with their mating? Or are they just, I mean, does the female do very different things from the male? I mean, it'd be interesting there. Uh, so they, uh, um, uh, they tend to, uh, when the female's uh, in heat, the male tends to uh, spend a lot of time chasing her um, around in circles and biting at her. Um, and then when they actually do mate, <laughs> wombats, because they're quite rotund um, animals, they, uh, they end up both laying on their side and at more, almost like a T intersection to one another <laughs> to, to be able to make oh. it work. So they don't sort of mount each other um, like, like a dog or something like that. <laughs> yeah, like um, people. Yeah. yeah. And I guess another feature of wombats that's quite unusual is, so I, mean, I think uh, many people are quite familiar with kangaroos have a, a pouch that the joey sits in, and wombats certainly have that, but their pouch actually faces the other direction because they're on all fours um, all of the time um, and they dig burrows. Um, one of the, uh, their pouch opening is actually um, to their back end. Um, and it's really? so that, yeah, it is. And, and it's, um, and it makes sense because if you're digging soil and pushing it underneath you, you don't want your pouch facing forward because you'd um, start filling it up 
Um, so, uh, so the Joey, Joey points out backwards. So. Really? Yeah. How do they reach around to get them in there? Like the, that would mean that they really can't help their Joey very much. They, they would have to do it themselves. I mean, if they're so fat, they can barely mate. How would they ever reach around to like, you know, put anything in the pouch or take anything out or. It's well, they don't, they don't really. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Uh, and kangaroos will certainly lick, uh, lick their pouches clean, but wombats don't. Um, um, and and um, birth in marsupials is basically a non-event um, because they give birth to um, a, a joey that's about the size of a jelly bean. So, so it's not the so birth is very different in marsupials relative to placental mammals that give birth to much larger uh, uh, individuals. So, marsupials give birth, and the joey basically crawls from. Um, from the cloaca into the burrow and wombats there's a very small distance for it to crawl into there and then attaches to the nipple inside of the pouch and then more or less will just stay there and the wombat will go about its thing until the joey reaches a certain size and then it starts to um, come out of the pouch periodically to feed on grass Um, and as it becomes larger it becomes sort of more and more um, independent of the pouch, um, but still hangs around with its mother. Um, and, uh, and, and a, a joey wombat will stay with its mother for one and a half to two years in general, um, before it becomes, um, uh, um, solitary itself or independent. Huh. Um, I guess how about comparing the pouches then to the kangaroo's pouch, you know, how many, uh, can fit in there, you know, how many offspring do the wombats have? I mean, if you look at pouch to pouch comparison, like, you know, what are the differences or similarities there? Uh, I guess um, the main uh, difference is the direction uh, that the pouch opens. Uh, pouches are broadly, uh, broadly similar uh, between a kangaroo and a wombat. Um, uh, what else would I say? A difference is there. Can they accommodate the same number of offspring? Or? Oh, yeah, that's right. Yep. Um, uh, they generally they both have one uh, at a time, so you, you almost never see marsupials with twins in the pouch. Um, but I thought I had heard that um, in a kangaroo pouch, for instance, you'll you'll have like maybe a very young joey, but also an older one that will not hang out in there the whole time, but return to it to feed at various points or to hang out, and then there may be a younger brother or sister that's there as well, or is that not true? Um, it's not very common. Um, what, they, what they tend to have is what we call reproductive diapers. So basically, kangaroos and wombats, they're more or less always pregnant, um, but they'll have an embryo that is, uh, uh, is paused, essentially. Um, and so if for some reason they lose their joey or that joey becomes independent, they usually get birth days um and oh, wow. uh, yeah so uh, so the, pretty much uh, a kangaroo or a wombat almost always has a joey in the pouch at different ages um and if yeah if they lose it then they're pregnant uh, then they'll have another one in there in a few days time um there are some marsupials that have a lot more young so some some of your marsupial carnivores um like your quolls or your devils actually have um, a litter of young, um, but your macropods and your wombats and your koalas tend to just have no time. Well, how many animals, by the way, have pouches? You, you, I don't know if you mentioned the name of a few other ones. It's not familiar, but the wombats do, uh, kangaroos do, what other, you know, large marsupials do? Um, uh, 
Um, pretty much, uh, pretty much all of them. Um, uh, the, the pouches vary a little bit, like in a devil, the pouches are quite small, um, and same with the quoll, but, uh, I, I'm just trying to think through if I know of any marsupials, um, um, that don't have a pouch. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure that I do just off the top of my head. Oh, the Tasmanian devils, uh, I, I don't know much about them here in Tasmania. Yeah. Actually, could you talk about those for maybe a few minutes? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I don't know so. anything about them except, you know, which is not real growing up and watching the cartoon from Looney Tunes. But why, why are they called devils? What do you know about them? So Tasmanian devils um, don't spin around in circles uh, like the cartoons, but uh, are about these kind of like corgi-sized um, marsupial carnivores. They look like a little dog, really. Um um, and they're all black and they have a couple of white stripes on them. Uh, and uh, and uh, the, they're not very big, but they're the top predators in Tasmania. Uh, and were formerly more, um, they formerly occurred um, historically on the Australian mainland as well, but uh, were probably pushed to um, extinction by the uh, introduction of the dingo about 5,000 years ago. Um, um, so they're now restricted to just Tasmania. Uh, and uh, uh, they... Um, uh, mostly scavengers, uh, but they're all, they can also be active predators as well. And uh, um, they, what else can I tell you? What else? What else would you like to know about Tasmanian devils? Well, again, they're, they're, so they're called devils because they're what real strong oh. predators. Are they? Is it because yeah. when they attack, they're really vicious, or what, you know, why are they called devils? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. So um, they're they're originally called. Um, Tasmanian devils is really their uh, European name, and uh, uh, and they were called that because at night times they have a call that uh, sounds very um, ghoulish and is kind of like a rasping kind of scream. Um, and and if you don't know what it is, uh, and you had just come to this foreign country, I imagine that's quite scary. Uh, and uh, and so that's how they uh, they picked up this name called uh, the devil um, because of uh, of the sounds that they make. Um, but in reality, they're actually yeah, quite a small uh, kind of dog sized marsupial carnivore that is um, otherwise quite secretive. Um, so most people never see a wild Tasmanian devil. You can go see them in wildlife parks and that sort of thing. Uh, they're of they're otherwise quite secretive nocturnal animals. Um, uh, yeah. Okay. And, and they're quite impacted by uh, 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 quite a unique disease, uh, which is called Des- Tasmanian Devil Facial Tumor Disease, um, which is a, a cancer, um, but it's a cancer that's transmissible. So devils that uh, come into contact with another uh, one another during feeding or reproduction often sort of bite each other. And this cancer mostly is localized around the face and the mouth. And when they bite each other, they can actually tra- transfer cancer cells to the other individual and that gives that individual cancer. Um, and that's had a huge impact um, on devils and caused about an 80% decline of devils across the state um, over the, the last um, last 20 years uh, or 25 years. So, uh, so it's quite a significant conservation issue for them, uh, but also an extremely unusual type of pathogen impacting a wildlife species. Do you think that means that, um, I know this is getting probably really esoteric, but I don't know, would a, a Tasmanian devil be able to give an organ transplant to another Tasmanian devil? Because maybe because they can bite each other and, you know, one tolerate another's cells and not have an immune response to them that's strong enough to get rid of them. Perhaps that uh, 
they're able to do things that, you know, for instance, we couldn't or other animals couldn't? Probably not. Uh, so uh, one of the things that cancers do, because technically other cancers could be um, transmissible, and there are certainly cases of, like, surgeons working on cancers that have accidentally, like, stabbed themselves with a needle um, that's been in contact with the cancer and transmitted that to themselves. Um, uh, but for the most part, cancers don't have sort of the mechanisms of, like, transmission uh, or to support transmission. Um, but one of the things that cancers do to uh, avoid uh, the host's immune system is they downregulate these sort of uh, molecular markers around the surface of the cells called um, MHC. Uh, and, and MHC basically is sort of a, a, a recognition marker that the immune system can tell what is like what is yourself versus what is a bit foreign. And because these cancers have this sort of like uh, ability to downregulate that, they basically um, uh, they basically are telling the immune system that um, they belong in that host as well. So, if you were to transplant an organ, however, they wouldn't uh, they behave differently. That they, they uh, would be recognised by the immune system and um, and uh, would be attacked by the host immune system. And the only way you could regulate that, like with humans, would be to give like immune suppressants. I just thought it was a special case that uh, they could transfer cancer. I didn't know that it could be transferred in, you know, in certain occasions in people and yeah. other animals. That's why I thought that. No, that's okay. Yeah, no, it's a good question. So. Is there, do you see any, um, I mean, do you know of any scientists that focus on the, you know, the physiology and the various aspects of, of pouches or marsupials? Is there something you, you feel that maybe, you know, it's a unique structure? <clears throat> I mean, there's probably a lot of learnings that could be, achieved there by studying them do you know i mean do yeah. you study them or do you know anyone that does yeah it's not my area of uh super strong expertise but i've got some colleagues that i could recommend um, um and if uh who can probably speak to it better than i can or who could probably point you on to um, other people as well and that sort of thing so i'd be happy to suggest people okay well very good well scott what's the best way for people to find out more about you know your work and get in contact um, uh, I guess uh, probably the best ways are uh, through, uh, if they want to follow the actual research publications, things like Google Scholar, um, uh, that they, they seem to do the best job at uh, keeping up to date with those sorts of things. Um, and uh, my university website uh, would be the other one. And, um, uh, and I usually uh, seem to garnish a reasonable amount of fun sort of uh, media communication. So, uh, so just Googling my name and uh, um, uh, usually, usually brings up some links that people can look at as well. Thanks for coming on the podcast. And uh, I know you're coming from far, far away and it's a, probably an unusual time for you. So thank you. No problem. Well, thanks a lot for having me, Richard. I really appreciate it. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.